Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Volume Knob, the songs that saved your life. This week, Will and Tom Trobert's Blues. Good day, friends. I hope you're well wherever you are. I've got a question to start this week. I'm wondering if any of you, like me, may have been so obsessed with a certain artist that they did something to actually change their behavior to emulate that artist, like get a Billy Idol haircut or smoke a certain brand of cigarettes. When I was a teenager, I remember reading an article in the Discorder, which was the magazine at CITR Radio, and that's UBC's radio station in Vancouver. And the author was a young woman who was obsessed with Joey Ramone. And she not only expressed this obsession through her article, where she talked about how obsessed she was with Joey Ramone, she did research on Joey Ramone's obsession with Yoohoo chocolate milk. And she went around trying to find Yoohoo chocolate milk in Vancouver, which at the time was impossible. They didn't make it or distribute it in BC. And I had a soft spot for that level of obsession. I was the kind of kid who would borrow his dad's overcoat and pose in the bedroom mirror pretending to be a member of some 80s new wave band. I could totally relate. And I think this week's storyteller probably can as well. My name is Will Clegg. I'm a filmmaker and a storyteller living in Jersey City. And the song that saved my life is Tom Schaubert's Blues by Tom Waits. Will's story is, at a certain level, about fandom. It's about being in love with an artist and their work and wanting to model themselves after it. But it's also about what happens when we grow up and we learn a little bit more and we wonder if the message we were getting from the art that we love was right in the first place. When I was in high school, my peers voted me as most sophisticated for our superlatives in our senior yearbook, which seemed sort of ridiculous at the time. Like how can a 17 year old kid really be sophisticated, right? But. Uh, It made sense. It was part of the persona that I I put out there. Uh, A lot of adults referred to me as an old soul. Kids in my class, I think probably behind my back, referred to me as pretentious. In the wintertime, I would wear like a pea coat and a scarf and a little paperboy cap. Uh, I listened to almost exclusively jazz. I didn't have a ton of friends. Like, you know, I I was friendly with a lot of people, but I kind of kept to myself. I was a little bit of a loner. And I developed this persona mostly because of an older friend of mine named Bill. Bill was two years older than me. Uh, he was brilliant. He was very witty. And uh, and everybody loved him. Even though he wasn't like popular like, like say, the jocks were. You know, he was, uh, he was the kind of guy that everybody liked a lot. And, uh, and everybody just really respected him and his opinions. And, uh, and he listened to a lot of jazz. So that's where I learned about uh, jazz. And, and, of course, he listened to it on vinyl, right? Because uh, that's how classy he was. And he was the first person who also told me about Tom Waits. He played for me the album Small Change which really blew my uh, my young mind. I'd never heard anything like it. 
Small change got rained on with his own .38. Nobody flinched down by the arcade. If you've heard Tom Waits before, you must remember the first time you heard his voice. Because that, like, gravelly vibrato is just, like, uh, like nothing else. Uh, to me, it sounded kind of like Louis Armstrong. But the first time I played it for a friend of mine who never heard it, he said uh, that it sounded like Cookie Monster. Which, objectively, like, it does kind of sound like Cookie Monster. But the songs aren't about cookies, you know? I mean, the the lyrics are these, like, very, uh, very adult uh, in my mind, like very American things like he sang about blood and whiskey and uh, and one armed bandits and and wounds that will never heal. And, and I think that 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 adult aspect of it is what really drew me to it. Like I wanted to skip through my teenage you know, years and my adolescence, just be an already full grown man. I mean, that was part of what this sophisticated persona was really all about. The blood is by the jukebox on an old linoleum floor. And so by the time I discovered Tom Waits, there were already 12 albums. So there was so much for me to become obsessed with, and, and I did. But I always came back to Small Change and, and the first track on there, Tom Traubert's Blues, which is a song just about a guy who's basically wandering around drunk in a foreign country, uh, lamenting uh, a heartbreak. Bill went off to college in New York City. We were in North Carolina in Charlotte, and uh, it just wasn't really big enough for him. So he, he went off to Columbia University. And I immediately decided then that when my time came in two years, I wanted to go to Columbia University. That was going to be hard, right? That's an Ivy League school. It's a bit of a long shot. So I really put my nose to the grindstone. You know, I did well on my uh, my standardized tests. And then I, I got in to Columbia, which was great because I told my parents the night before I found out that if I didn't get into Columbia, I wasn't going to go anywhere for college, uh, which deeply upset them, as you might imagine. But, but good news, I was going. I was going to get out of Charlotte, too, and get to go and make a new life for myself in New York City. And when I arrived, like, I was so excited to find that there were so many other people like me there, like, you know, nerdy kids who, like, didn't necessarily fit in in their hometowns and, and had come to New York to, to try to find something different. And a lot of them knew about Tom Waits, which was awesome, too. One new thing that happened in, in New York was that I was able to experience, like, the, the boozy part of the Tom Waits songs. Right. I'd never really been a drinker as a kid. Uh, certainly was around, like in, especially in high school, but nobody in my family really drank a lot, and I just never got into it. And uh, even when they had like keg parties, like it's not something that I would go to. I didn't hang out with that crowd, and you know, I was I was Mister Sophisticated, so I kind of turned my nose up at that stuff anyway. And the only real experience that I had with a with a drunk person was a soccer coach that I had when I was eleven. He was one of the uh, the dads of another kid on the team, and he's this little short guy with a pot belly, and his nose was always red, and his breath always kind of smelled like like stale alcohol. And uh, you know, we didn't really think too much of it until like one afternoon at practice, he tried to kick the ball to somebody, and he fell down, and everybody started laughing, but 
you know, it wasn't really that funny to me. Like, it was just kind of like a sadness and a darkness to it that uh, I didn't understand. And I didn't really feel like I wanted to. And, and I think that image kind of kept me away from alcohol for a long time. But not in New York. Uh, there, you know, the, the booze flows freely. And, uh, and I started to, to imbibe. And, and I felt like suddenly, like, I was able to be like the, the Tom Waits characters in all these songs. Like, wandering around Manhattan in the middle of the night, you know, locking arms with my buddies and lamenting uh, our, our long-distance relationships that were falling apart. And, and being loud and boisterous and just, you know, young American men. And it felt amazing. My sophomore year, when I returned to school, by then the drinking had gotten a little bit out of control. Now, like, I'm starting to black out occasionally and I'm vomiting. Uh, one night I, I woke up uh, to the sound of my own vomit, actually. Uh, and I was in my bed. I had no idea how I'd gotten there. And my roommates jumped up and they, you know, ripped me out of the bed and put me over the toilet while they tear all the sheets off my bed and, and, uh, and get them ready for me to launder when I'm sober. And uh, then, of course, the next morning, I, I would, like, swear off drinking. I'm never doing this again, you know. But uh, next weekend, would roll around and I'd do it again. But it wasn't really interfering with my life much beyond like the occasional wicked hangover. Like my grades were still up, you know, my relationships were okay. So I was kind of like able to sweep it under the rug and pretend like it wasn't problematic. And, and honestly, like there were a lot of people around me who were doing the same thing. And so it just felt like something that was part of college and that was okay. Then something really magical happens the fall of that sophomore year. Tom Waits goes on tour and he comes to New York City and he's playing three shows at the Beacon Theater, which is this beautiful, ornate, old theater with uh, with amazing acoustics. And it's right on the Upper West Side. I can walk there from my dorm and, uh, and I get a ticket to the first night of shows and, and Bill is going with me. So, you know, I haven't really been that close to Bill in college. Like, kind of, you know, made our own path. We still get together and hang out occasionally. But this is going to be like a night just for us to, like, kind of catch up, you know, old time's sake and, and enjoy this musician that we both love so much. And uh, it was $100 for a ticket, which in 1999 is like an obscene amount of money. It's more than twice as much as I've ever spent on any concert. Uh, but I know it's just going to be worth every penny. And uh, and we get there and it's just like there's an electricity in the crowd as we're all waiting to take our seats because it just feels like this like secret club that we're in you know not everybody knows about tom waits and even the people that do they don't necessarily love him but but we all do you know and we're just buzzing as we finally get there we have seats right on the, the edge of the first balcony and uh and he comes out and he starts to sing and and he just looks and sounds so old I can't believe it. I mean, he always had that older, gravelly-sounding voice, but now it sounds like his vocal cords are just, like, shredded. And his face, I mean, he looks, like, as old as my grandfather, but he's 50 in 1999. And something just kind of goes in the back of my mind, like, well, is this is this what happens when you, when you just drink and smoke and, and sing in that deep voice? I mean, is this, is this what you look like? You can ask any sailor And the keys from the jail 
but I'm still able to enjoy the show. I mean, he plays all these songs off of Mule Variations, this new album, and, and then he plays a bunch of the old tunes that we all love, too. And even plays one off of Small Change, Invitation to the Blues, that I love. And that night really kind of emboldens me to start performing. Um, I've been kind of like screwing around with my buddy Dave. He plays the guitar and I sing. And one night, late night, when we were drunk, uh, he started playing Tom Trowbert's blues and I started singing in the Tom Waits voice. And, uh, and just from the first two words, you know, wasted and wounded, uh, I knew like, uh, this is, this is something we got to keep doing. And, uh, and that, that was a tough song because it's seven minutes long. And there's a lot of lyrics, right? So I mostly screw them up, especially after I've been drinking. But uh, but we got a repertoire together of like five different songs. We'd play at different open mics all around the Upper West Side. And, and after seeing him in concert, like I said to Dave, like we should, you know, we should do this. Like not just an open mic, like at, for our friends, like in a real venue. And so we had a group of friends in a band called Oxytocin that played around town a lot. And, uh, and they had a gig right across the street from campus at uh, the West End, which is like the famous Columbia Bar. It's not there anymore, but 114th and Broadway. Spent a lot of time there. And in the basement, they got a little dingy, smoky room. And so after Oxytocin played their, their set, uh, Dave and I just like sneak up there, which we kind of prearrange with the sound guy. And even though all the lights are on and it's not set up for a show or up there, uh, he plugs in his guitar and he starts to play. And I've got a, a glass of whiskey in one hand and a lit cigarette in the other one. Got my paperboy cap on. And I just start to sing. And the whole crowd, after about 30 seconds, goes like dead silent. And we've got them, right? And half of them are like wrapped up in this. And the other half, I think, are cringing because they just don't know what's happening. They don't like it. But I don't care about any of them because I just get lost in this transcendental moment where I get to become the Tom Waits that I've always like dreamed about. And you know, I get through all seven minutes of the song and actually get every single lyric right, maybe for the first time ever. And it's just this perfect performance. And when we're done, there's a little smattering of applause. Some people are still pretty confused. And, and we step down off the stage and this kid who I know from around campus, but I've never really talked to, I don't even know his name. He just comes up and he grabs my arm and he says, that was so moving. I don't know what that song is or what just happened, but I, you know, I, I loved it. And the piano has been drinking. The piano has been drinking. And the man you... So into my junior year, I kind of curtailed the drinking a little bit. I mean, I'm still drinking like too much for sure. And, uh, and looking back now, I can see that I didn't really stopped drinking as much so much as my body was tolerating it more and more alcohol right so i'm not blacking out i'm not throwing up Uh, i'm kind of like even keel most of the time but i'm still doing like a lot of damage to myself and i just kind of continue in that vein uh for the entire year 
my grades are still up. You know, my family doesn't really notice any difference. My friends, my girlfriend, they're all okay with it. So I, I don't really feel like I have to stop. And then we make a pilgrimage to New Orleans, Dave and me and a couple other buddies. And then we go and we, uh, we traipse around, going to all the spots where Tom Waits used to hang out, the Hummingbird Diner where he used to take his meals. We eat breakfast there every day. You know, we, we buy bottles and we put them in brown paper bags and we walk down Claiborne and, and Burgundy arm in arm, just like in the song. And, and we have an amazing time, but the drinking is just like on another level down there already and uh and we <laughs> sorry i gotta just stop for a sec um yeah um, and on, down burgundy, And I think something like scared us a little bit down there, uh, the way that it was just so socially acceptable to be that way. Are you an alcoholic? I thought I was, I guess. I mean, maybe it depends on who you ask. You know what I mean? Um, cause now like, I, I mean, I don't struggle with it anymore, you know, but there was a moment at the beginning of this pandemic where I did. And because it felt like the world was ending again. And I started to go back to this crutch of alcohol. But I, I you know, this time I kind of quickly recognized it and snapped out of it. The last time Will felt like the world was ending was at the beginning of his senior year at Columbia. September of 2001. So the second week of classes is 9-11. And it's right practically in our backyard, a few miles down the road. And at the same time, I was going through a really bad breakup with the first girl that I really did truly love. And those two things together just made it feel like the entire world was ending. Uh, it's hard for me to, to see a future. I was about to graduate college. I didn't know what I was going to do. The whole world was kind of in the shitter now, you know, both externally and like my internal romantic life. And, and, uh, and then I turned back to the booze, right? I try to find some solace at the bottom of a bottle of bargain scotch, just like Waits sings about. And this time I don't care. I don't care like how bad it gets because there's just, feels like there's nowhere for me to go. And then I get an email from Bill. Um, I haven't really talked to Bill since he graduated two years ago. It's great to hear from him. I mean, he's just checking in because he knows 9-11 just happened. He saw his lots of friends in New York. He just wants to make sure that I'm doing okay. And we start chatting back and forth a bit and it's great just to hear his you know digital voice uh for the first time in so long and then he, he sends me a link to an article because he knows how much i love small change and, uh, and he found this article from rolling stone in 1976 right after the album had come out and i immediately 
click and dig into it. And, uh, and he talks in there about the song Bad Liver and a Broken Heart, which was kind of like, uh, like my mantra at this point, right? And, um, and he says that he was starting to believe there was something amusing and wonderfully American about being a drunk. And then he ended up telling himself to cut that shit out. Then he says, there ain't nothing funny about being a drunk. And my mind just is like melted by this. Like suddenly I think, well, oh no, I think I've been listening to this album all wrong. I didn't get it. He's not romanticizing this myth. He's, he's criticizing it. And I immediately put the album on again and I listen and I, and I hear the like regret in his voice and in his lyrics and, uh, and how ridiculous it is when he sings the piano has been drinking, not me. And, uh, and then I feel like I have permission to stop aspiring to be a sad drunk. And I'd like to tell you that like, I stopped drinking right then and, and never drank again. Uh, and that's not true. You know, I, I still drink now. But I did make a pact with myself that if I'm going to continue to have alcohol as a part of my life, I'm going to have to learn to drink like a responsible adult or I'm going to have to cut that shit out completely. And it took me a number of years to sort that out. But I did. And, uh, you know, I'm lucky. I mean, I never bottomed out. I never had to go into recovery. Uh, but I did kind of peer over the edge of the precipice there. And, uh, and thankfully I took a couple steps back. Hey friend, thanks for listening. The Volume Knob is a weekly exploration of personal stories and the power of music. It's produced by Some of an Audio, and it's made entirely by me, the podcast producer who also wishes he was in New Orleans. My name is Keith Siri. If you haven't already, I'd be honored if you shared this episode or one of your favorites with someone you know who loves great stories. If you do social media, you can follow the show on Twitter. Our handle there is at Volume Knob 1, that's the number one, or on Instagram at volume underscore knob. Be sure to get over to www.volumenob.net where you'll find links to more information about Will and his storytelling work. He's the co-founder of a great series called Awkward Teenage Years, which has featured a lot of guests that have also been on uh, the Volume Knob. In this week's show notes, you'll also find a link to a playlist of songs inspired by Will's story. This week's playlist is called Songs About Blood and Whiskey, but it's heavy on the whiskey and not so heavy on the blood. I hope you like it. Finally, my thanks to Kate for her 30-second review of Tom Trobert's Blues, which she thinks sounds a little like a family favorite here in the Siri household. So, tell me what you think. I thought it sounded like Thunder Road, and I like Thunder Road, but it was a bit boring. I mean, I'm sorry, and it may be a good song. It probably is, is but my point is, You need more hip, hop, block, and whatever the rest of the words are. You know, you need more hypeness.
Is that is that a word? This would have been better with a big drum beat, is what you're saying. Yeah, uh-huh. It needs something to pop Katie out. See you again next week on The Volume Knob for more stories about the songs that saved your life. <laughs>